With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. If a paramedic or doctor or nurse turns up in the whole BED, their life is about to get slightly more chaotic. <laughs> and this is a way in which casualty is really similar to soaps, right? You kind of get your characters, you create people that you love, and then you kind of torture the characters. And that's how you, that's how you kind of find out what they're made of. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, how are you doing? Oh my goodness. I can't quite put my finger on why, but I feel a huge sense of relief, a lightness, if you will. Yes, I um, wonder what that could be coming yeah, from. What's that all about? Hmm. I think a, a lot of us had been feeling like we were standing under a cloud that had a really, very real possibility that it was going to deluge us with human waste at just about any moment. So I'm really glad that that particular shadow has blown over, more or less, and I can get on with my work. What about you? Yeah, not being under a human shit cloud uh, <laughs> is pretty great. Um, my book is due to the editor. The first, you know, handoff of the manuscript to the editor is uh, November 20th. And Oof. so I am just furiously, you know, cutting and fine tuning and trying to get it in shape where I think it's good enough that I want someone else to read it. Yeah, That has gotten a little bit easier. It was very slow going Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of last week. And then yeah, magically yeah, on Monday, yeah. I just like just started blazing through the whole thing. It's uh, funny how that works. Um, I had a lot more concentration this week, that's for sure. It's a good reminder for people, you know, like myself, I'm including myself here, who can be quite hard on themselves about creativity and um, productivity and concentration in the midst of all this, that like a lot of your brain is focusing on other stuff and could get bogged down in it, whether you want it to or not. And, and that's just part of being alive in this moment. Yeah. Now we just heard the voice of Jenny Thompson. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Cause I was not familiar with her work. Yes. Jenny is the story producer on Casualty, which is a very long running British medical drama that airs on the BBC over there and can be seen on BritBox in the US, though there currently aren't any episodes on the service because of a COVID related hiatus, which we get into in the interview. Jenny's job, which she explains in the interview, is one that really doesn't exist in the United States. And one of the things I've come to realise in recent years is that TV is just made in really different ways in the UK and in the US. And that's why I wanted to hear from someone who works on a British long running show, how British television gets made. And Jenny seemed like a great person to talk us through that. June, my guess is that many of our listeners do not watch Casualty uh, because it's maybe a little hard to get. So can you tell us a little bit about it and its place in British TV culture? I recommend it to everybody. Uh, Casualty is set in a busy hospital emergency room. Casualty is the old fashioned name for what Brits call the emergency department. You'll hear Jenny refer to it as the ED in the interview. Uh, it's a great setting for an ongoing show because there are new sick people walking into the department every day, bringing stories with them. But there are also a lot of continuing characters, the doctors and nurses and EMTs and porters and administrators and so on, who work in the hospital. And the ongoing characters provide the serial elements that Jenny focuses on. Nurse Level, could you do a venous blood gas using ease, FBC, uh, CRP, BM and troponin for Mrs. Faulkner? Millie Love. 
mainly for opener. And take a urine sample and do a dipstick test. And also an ECG. Okay, um, is that everything? What, is there anything else? Well, I wouldn't know, would I? I'm just a newly qualified nurse. <laughs> I think the most important thing to know about casualty is that it has been on the air for 35 years. It's what? Into... <laughs> I mean, that's just normal. That's a Johnny-come-lately on British television. <laughs> and at least one actor has been on the show that whole time. Um, it airs on Saturday night in prime time. Brits actually watch television on weekends. And it's one of the most popular shows in Britain. As Jenny and I discuss, it's not exactly a soap opera, but it's definitely a close cousin. And while you might think of British shows as having short seasons, just think of like that horrible feeling of frustration when you hear that there's a new season of Derry Girls and then you burn through it in like three hours and then you're left just crying and wondering where the next episodes are coming. That is not the case for Casualty. There's some variation depending on things like the sporting calendar, but there are generally somewhere between 44 and 46 episodes a year. Again, I say, what? <laughs> exactly. 46 episodes a year? Absolutely. For 35 years? Absolutely. So if you tuned in to BBC One on a random Saturday night at some point in the last 35 years, chances are you'd find an episode of Casualty playing. Well, this sounds like it's from Mars, and I can't <laughs> wait to listen to it. But first, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we'll hear about Jenny's soap opera bona fides, and also about a really interesting episode of Casualty that aired earlier this year. Listeners, if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus... What are you waiting for? I mean, seriously, you can get two weeks free right now. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear June's conversation with Jenny Thompson. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Who are you and what do you do? I am Jenny Thompson, and I am the story producer on the BBC's Saturday night medical drama, Casualty. I have a question that I know is probably a little contentious. Uh, is Casualty a soap? Yeah, that that is kind of a contentious question. I think Casualty, like its sister show, Holby City, is a medical drama. Mm -hmm. And I think that means that on kind of an axis from, you know, realism to kind of melodrama, it sits kind of more down the realist end. If you think mm -hmm. about a lot of soaps and what we expect from soaps, and I used to work on a soap. Which one did you work on? Uh, I worked on The Archers for BBC Radio 4. Wow. But, you know, when you're, when you're working in soap, I think you can kind of push the boundaries of you know, how how long it takes for kind of court cases to get to court and mm. what police procedure is. And there's all kinds of things that you can fudge. But with a show like Casualty, we really strive to get the medicine right. And I mm. think because we try and get the medicine right, it automatically means that the world that we're operating in is one a little bit more bound by kind of the real world um, than an out-and-out -out soap. So what you're saying is, yes, it's a continuing drama. It's been running a long time, but that doesn't equal soap opera. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think the show's kind of changed quite a lot kind of in its in its history. And there have been times where kind of soapy elements, sort mm-hmm. of doctors and nurses and paramedics falling in love and out of love and addiction issues and mm. workplace issues and strife and all of that good stuff is kind of more to the fore. And there have been times when it's been pulled a bit back because the weird thing about Casualty is that it has a story of the week element. Yes. It's interesting, our audience, I think they feel quite split between people who tune in to see what is happening to their favourite kind of medical professionals, um, our kind of dysfunctional superheroes, (laughs) and people who really do like the story of the weak element. They like to see what the stunt is. They like to see like the characters that walk into the ED and need help that week. And I think that, you know... A few months ago, I looked at a really old story document, which is what I work on from, you know, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. And the serial element was so tiny. It mm. was just kind of, you know, um, one doctor ends their relationship with a nurse. That was it. And then something else was like, you know, somebody finds a pet dog and adopts it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my job would be so simple <laughs> if that was all I had to do. Yeah. But um, I think there's been like an maybe a trend towards this that serial element of shows kind of getting a bit bigger i don't know if that's true for something like law and order so you're a story producer i don't know if your job exists in american writers rooms um can you explain what exactly you do and what you don't do yeah so i don't have to be out in the rain making an episode (laughs) of casualty i don't have to be on location I don't have to be on the floor where the show gets made. So I have a kind of an office-based job. But what I am responsible for are the long-running storylines. So the things that run kind of over the course of a series or a few weeks or an arc. So it's what we kind of collectively call the serial. Um, And that's to differentiate it from the guest stories. And the guest stories is what the writer of a particular episode will contribute. And that's what they'll bring to the process. So you don't write the scripts, you come up with the stories that the scripts will tell over the course of a season or over the longer term. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's a job that's not particularly kind of well known because I think you naturally as a viewer, if you watch an episode of Casualty and you've seen who's written it, you would think, well, yeah, they've handled everything there. But actually my team, like we're the people who kind of come up with the storyline so that a writer when they're commissioned, will see what their A, B and C serial is that they have to kind of cover in their episode. And sometimes it's kind of bigger and smaller. So sometimes you might have quite a serial heavy episode because we're building maybe to a a series finale, to a massive confrontation, to an exit for a major character or the introduction of a new character. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the serial elements are quite small and it gives the writer an opportunity to tell like a really meaty guest story, which kind of dominates the episode. And when people think about that app, they'll think, oh, that's the one where the guy came in with a bomb strapped to his chest, or that's where something else kind of wild happened. So can you give an example from maybe a recent season of the serial element that you're talking about? Like what's an example of a, of a serial storyline that you are really focused on? A serial storyline that we had I don't know, just over a year ago or so, was for a paramedic who was leaving the show. Um, she was The character was called Ruby. She'd been in the show for a couple of years. And we knew that the actor wanted to, to do new things, mm. take up new opportunities. So we had quite a lot of time to kind of build to a nice exit for that character and to think about what parts of her character we hadn't really explored. Ruby was someone who was kind of very diligent Mm -hmm. um she took the job really seriously she was very rule-based and she's always a kind of tightly wound character and so we kind of chose to explore her hinterland a little bit kind of Mm -hmm. what is it that's made her that way so we introduced the character of her sister Mm -hmm. who was a recovering addict and got to see a little bit of their sister dynamic and it's been years, Violet, not months. You just disappear. And when you do come back, you usually want something. You think I want money. It'd just be nice if, if you stuck around for once in, instead of just running off as soon as you got what you came for. God, you are unbelievable. You just think you're better than me. No, I do not think I'm better than you. Who was it practically raised you? Who was there when mum and dad weren't? 
I didn't come here for money. I just wanted to see my sister share my news and instead I get you preaching at me. No, and that kind of culminated in the story for us with Ruby kind of taking charge of her uh, sister's child and then deciding that it was incompatible with her life in Holby, which is the fictional city, and heading off for a new adventure elsewhere. I guess this is it then. Um, not a paramedic anymore. Aww. So that was something where we were kind of... We had good warning about this exit coming up. Yeah. And then we could all just sort of collectively think about what kind of exit we wanted. And you go through loads of options. You know, you think about, is this a character that we might kill off? Is it a character that we might like to have back someday? Mm. Are we looking for like a tragic exit? Do we want to give them everything they want? And yeah, like they're really kind of fun creative discussions, particularly around an exit, because mm -hmm. sometimes with characters in long-running shows you want them to do like terrible things to for like dramatic import yeah but we still want to like them and we still yeah. want to feel that they're kind of good people yeah so exits are always fun i'm thinking of another huge exit that you had quite recently too which was duffy who was one of the longest running nurses in the show right she'd been mm. in it for many decades um you all i imagine that was another big focus for you kind of controlling her arc right her exit yeah, and, and that was kind of planned, um, kind of Duffy having dementia and what form of dementia she had and what toll that took on her partner, Charlie. Mm. That was kind of planned over quite the long term. Yeah. And things like that are kind of great because you just feel that everyone is really invested and everyone wants to serve that story, partly mm -hmm. because the character's been around such a long time. Casualty, as we have said, um, has been on the air for many decades now. There are characters who've been in it a long time how important is history to the show? Do you think, for example, oh, we couldn't have Charlie doing that because back in 2003, like, do you, are you kind of constantly aware of all of the players that you have and the situations that you've had in the past? Or to what extent is that kind of controlling um, what you're plotting out for the future? As you can imagine, like, you know, if a paramedic or doctor or nurse turns up in whole BED, their life is about to get slightly more chaotic yes. and loads of stuff is going to happen to them. And the, the longer they're in the show, the more things they're going to go through. And this is a way in which casualty is really similar to soaps, right? You kind of get your characters, you create people that you love, you cast them with really talented people, and then you kind of torture the characters. And that's how you... <laughs> It's how you kind of find out what they're made of and it's, yeah. it's how our audience cares about them. And almost as soon as someone you know, has a happy ending, we've lost energy with that person and you start thinking, well, how do we kind of um, take away all their happiness and kind of start right. over and reset the character? Yeah. So there's kind of an element to casualty where I think you, can be, you could be quite burdened by the history of the show. Yeah. And I think if you kept it too much in your mind oh, actually, this person, this has happened to this person before and, and this person experienced something like this before, it could be quite inhibiting of your creativity. But on the other hand, sometimes history is great and it gives a story so much more meaning. So if someone in their hinterland grew up with a parent that had a particular kind of issue and they bring it to their storyline in the current day, it can really elevate it. Mm-hmm. And I think what you really don't want, because it's Saturday night telly and you, you want pace and you want action, is you don't want characters saying, gosh, we're in this terrible situation. Do you remember 15 years ago when we were in a really similar situation? <laughs> like, yeah. So I think we want to avoid that. But I'm sure like members of our audience will go, oh, yeah, I remember the last time that, yeah, yeah. you know, somebody got stabbed in the ED or whatever it might be. So... A lot of your job is planning. Um, how do you plan things out? On a whiteboard, cards, a Google Doc? How do you do that? Uh, yeah, whiteboards. Um, <laughs> whiteboards are very important. So we kind of, um, in our story offices that we're not in at the minute, we actually yeah. have the whole series kind of planned out up to kind of, you know, 45 or 46 episodes. And as you're working through the series, you write up like what all the stories are, kind of your A, B and C who's writing it, who's producing it, who's script editing it. And then that's, I kind of reached a point where I couldn't really think without seeing the whiteboard because it uh -huh. was just, 
if someone sort of asked me a question about episode 12, I'd have a sort of mental blank until <laughs> I could go and stare at it and I go, oh, of course, yeah, it's that one, it's that one. And it's one of the weird things about working remotely yeah. is that we, we don't have our whiteboards anymore. So once you've kind of, you and your team maybe have come up with the the outlines that you've just described, the original ones, um, what is the next step uh, in terms of like once you've kind of come up with these larger arcs, um, the serial elements, what happens then? Well, I suppose the process begins when we have a couple of days storylining. So for the next, say, 12 episodes or six episodes that we're working on, we'll take two days and we'll have execs, producers, script editors, and crucially writers, like some of our core writers, we'll all get together and we'll talk about the storylines that we know that we're carrying on and we'll also talk about any new stories that we want to start. And we might talk about characters that have been a bit underserved. So sometimes we'll have a storylining and we'll say, actually, we think someone's dropped out a little bit and we're looking for a big story for them. Or we might all know where, we, where we're heading. So we mm -hmm. might know that we're doing a big issue-based story and we're halfway mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. But we want to think about how do we make it surprising? How do we put a reveal in there? How do we surprise our audience? So we spend a couple of days kind of kicking ideas around. And it's something that every continuing drama in the UK does, but each show does it in a slightly different way. So mm. at some big soaps, the writers submit written pitches and you kind of all get together and you read out your pitch and that's your idea for stories. Mm. And at other places, it's a bit looser. I think Casualty is a bit on the looser end because we often try to generate stories mm. when we're all together. Mm hmm and I find that really valuable as a story producer because when I go to storylining, I've probably just delivered the last lot of storylines. Yeah. So I don't really think I have any ideas. I feel kind of totally tapped out. So having other people sort of spotting stuff and thinking about characters that I haven't thought about or directions they want to go in, it's kind of a process of kind of like of re-inspiring the story team. Yeah. So we spend a couple of days doing that. And then from that, we do what I've been doing today, actually, which is kind of, it's almost the funnest bit, really, which <laughs> is called gridding. So, gridding. gridding. Yeah. So what that means is that I make a chart and it's almost like filling the boxes for each episode of where you think big stories are going to go, your A, Bs and Cs. Oh. And I like to do it in a really colour-coded way so I can just see exactly what the spine is. So what is the big story like propelling us through these six or 12 episodes? So I kind of grid everything, fill in all the boxes. You've always got a few boxes that are left empty, which is good because mm -hmm. as soon as you show it to someone else, they're going to say oh, I really feel like that story dropped out. Could we have a bit more of that? Or yeah. or maybe we could do like something a bit interesting, a bit special here. Yeah. And then once I've done the grid, I show it to a colleague of mine who's in charge of scheduling. And he basically checks that the storylines I'm writing, the show can produce. Because Casualty has two units operating at the same time. So we're always filming two episodes. Ah, and they're kind of tessellated. So it's not that they both start and stop at the same time. They kind of overlap. Uh -huh. And if I don't check with the scheduler, then I might end up having the same character being used in two episodes in the same week. Yes. And obviously that, unfortunately, <laughs> our actors can't be in two places at the same time. So, As you can probably tell, I watch the show. I, like, I really like the show. I think of, I mean, of course I'm aware of the storylines, but I'm focused on the characters. And I and so in my head, I was thinking your first priority is probably like, which actors are available, you know, this month, this week. But actually, that it sounds like that's kind of the last the last thing on your list, right? Yeah. So the actors are kind of contracted with us for kind of like, you know, for the duration of their contracts. So mm. it is just a case of can this person be you know, saving a life in a field and breaking up with their girlfriend, like, in recess at the same time? And the answer is usually no. <laughs> and, then, and then I kind of go back to the drawing board and go, oh, OK. And then that's where you start kind of moving stories around a little bit. Um, and that's to ensure that we can film it. And then after that, kind of the real work begins, which is I have to write the thing. 
So that's <laughs> kind of where I, I kind of go into a hobbit hole and I get quite bad at responding to emails and I drop out of meetings because mm. I work on a first draft, which is just kind of like me kind of trying to bash out what all of those big stories are. So I would start with the spine. So what we think is the biggest, most propulsive, most compelling story over these weeks. And then I just choose the other ones at random. I always should choose the story that I'm most worried about mm. and crack that first. But yeah. instead I leave that to the to last <laughs> and then I go, oh my goodness, what is the story? <laughs> <laughs> kind of about three days before my deadline. And then that goes to uh, my boss, the series producer, and it goes to our execs and I get notes back. Mm. So they read it and I get notes and then I have a second draft and then a third draft and then it goes to a wider part of the editorial team and then eventually it gets published and then they are kind of like, it's kind of fixed at that point. Like those are the storylines that we're doing mm. for the next you know, six, nine, 10, 12 episodes. And then the whole thing starts again with another storylining. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Jenny Thompson after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Do you have a question about your own work? Let us know. We talk to brilliant people all the time, and we are happy to ask them for advice on your behalf. Seriously, give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-WORK. Or drop us a line at working at slate.com. Oh, and by the way, if you're enjoying this episode, please do not forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. We have some amazing guests lined up and you won't want to miss them. All right, let's rejoin June's conversation with Jenny Thompson. One of the things that you haven't said much about so far are, you know, the things that I think you described earlier as the guest arcs or the, what did you call that? The guest? Yeah, the guest stories. The guest stories. So that's kind of the medical drama of the week. The person who is happily fixing his roof, who we see in the first scene, who's probably going to fall through the roof or something like that. That's a level of detail that's kind of comes after you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it means that the casualty storylines look quite different to what the storylines might look like for another big soap, another big UK soap, or maybe a big American soap. Because mm. with that, there is, the writer is obviously writing dialogue, they're breathing life into the scenes, they're kind of they're doing so much work, but they're not bringing along their own characters, and their own stories. Yeah. So the episode yeah. is kind of the complete episode. Whereas if I gave you the serial for an episode of Casualty, it's probably somewhere between, you know, a minimum, a third, a maximum two thirds of the episode. Huh. So that's kind of what you're seeing. And one of the things that makes Casualty unique, and I think something that makes the show a good one to write for, for writers, is that they get to bring their own preoccupations and their own characters and their own ideas. And, mm -hmm. and it can be preoccupations from kind of social issues um, to, to medicine, you know, yeah. you, some, some writers are quite medicine-led and they've read about a rare disease or illness or something and they really, really think it could make a compelling guest story. So what their job is, is once they've got their storylines, is we have a meeting and I talk through the serial. I kind of remember what was in my head and what was driving it and how their episode feeds into the bigger arc. They can ask me any questions and then they go away and they kind of have a think about how their guest story or guest stories would fit in. So I might write something in the story document where I might say, um, oh, I don't know, it'd be really cheesy. I'll, I'll think of something really cheesy. Um, <laughs> Connie thinks that, you know, doing her job is the most important thing. 
and interaction with the guest story patient makes her realise that friendship is the most important thing. Uh-huh. I should say, I've never written anything <laughs> as bad as that, but you can kind of use... Yeah. That's but but that gives an example of what is set and what the writer of the episode gets to pick, right? Yeah, and it's kind of giving the turning point to the writer. So some of those turning points I would have provided mm-hmm. in that character's journey, but then others the writer has an idea of the kind of territory the guest story might be in. So Mm -hmm. how does that guest story affect the doctor, the nurse or the paramedic who's involved with them? Wow. So the word that we use is kind of resonance. Mm. And it's a really, it's a really tricky thing actually, because essentially what we always want is good resonance, not bad resonance, which (laughs) is like the least helpful thing you can say. So bad resonance is, you know, where a doctor sees something in the guest story that directly mirrors their own life and then they learn the lesson and they go off and they and, and they correct what they're doing in their life. Mm. I don't think we ever have scripts that really do that. But you can get resonance in kind of other ways, in ways that are kind of subtler and more nuanced. And it's where our characters are making connections with the guest characters and it's informing kind of the next steps in their journey. Mm-hmm. And what makes that fun for me as a story producer on Casualty is it means that episodes look really different to what I imagine sometimes. Mm. Because if a writer has invented, you know, a massive guest story, which just kind of it changes everything and all of the serial is being fed through some kind of calamity or a huge stunt or whatever it might be, mm. it's kind of thrilling for me. And because and, in the sense when I write serial it's always like an ordinary day in the ED. Yeah. And people are, you know, having their their normal problems. And so the guest story element kind of allows each episode to feel authored, I yeah. think, and it allows a writer to kind of play to their strengths and yeah. what they really want to write about. There's a complicating factor for Casualty, which you mentioned earlier, which is that there is a spin-off show, Holby City, um, which is set in the same fictional hospital, but has a completely different cast and crew, slightly different tone, and it's made in a different city in the UK, actually a different country, a different constituent <laughs> country of the, of the United Kingdom. Um, it's also like a total Johnny-come-lately. It's only been on the air for, I think, 22 years. Huh. Yeah, it's nothing. Um, nothing. <laughs> um, but that sounds like it introduces complications, because I'm thinking of like a few years ago on Holby City, there was like a, you know, something that actually would have been in the the world's newspapers, you know, there was a shooting uh, that, you know, killed people and seriously injured some very prominent doctors. It's in the same hospital, but it's a different show. To what extent are you kind of thinking about what's going on in Holby City? So we get sent kind of Holby City's storylines and we send them ours. Mm. Um, so you do kind of always get a heads up and you kind of see exactly kind of what's coming down the track and what they're planning. And we also have characters that... Although we don't have, like, our characters are casualty characters and there's our Holby City characters. We have two. Um, There's a guy in casualty called Marty and his cousin is called Kian and he's in Holby. So there are kind of sometimes familial relationships or friendships that go across both shows. But I think really it's just a case of kind of um, giving each other a heads up Mm. to know that you can kind of acknowledge something in in your world um, or in their world. The two shows have done kind of crossovers um, with varying levels of ambition. Sometimes it's as simple as borrowing a character Mm. that you need. So, you know, our department in Casualty is the emergency department, which is just obviously one department of a big hospital. Mm. Holby City is about the rest of the hospital. Mm. So if we need there to be kind of um, the CEO of the hospital to come down and stir things up in casualty, we'll ask to borrow their CEO. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's kind of nice because I think about 40% of the audiences watch both shows, Uh which actually in a funny way is a bit less than you might think. You might think it would be a kind of higher overlap, but I guess that's where the different characters and the different tones of the two shows might just attract different kinds of audiences. You know, I would say the biggest difference between a British medical show and an American medical show is the NHS that, you know, it's set in an NHS hospital, which, you know, the National Health Service isn't just a healthcare delivery system. It's also a beloved British institution and an institution that there's a lot of feelings about that 
people care about and people fight for and people argue over. Um, you know, to the extent that, as we all recall, it was the centerpiece of the opening ceremony of the London Olympics yeah. eight years ago. How does that affect your job? I think it, it's the best place that you could set drama, not just because it's an emergency department in the mould of something like ER, but because mm -hmm. it is this institution that is kind of loved, that sometimes disappoints us but is also kind of seems to always be there for us. And that I think that there's a, a deep love, but also sometimes an ambivalence about the NHS in the UK, which I think that kind of our characters and including our regular characters, people who work for the NHS mm. can really feel and they can encapsulate. They can be annoyed about low pay. They mm. can be annoyed about bureaucracy. They can be annoyed that they have these targets that are set and can they actually meet these targets by the government? Mm. And I think that... There's something in that which I think really resonates with people because I think every person in Britain has probably had an interaction yeah. with the NHS that has been kind of frustrating. But at the same time, I was born in an NHS hospital. Mm -hmm. So were my parents. Mm -hmm. So were my grandparents. You kind of wouldn't be without it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that's just a, a huge part of the show, really, and the fact that anyone can walk through the door yeah. and you will be helped. Um, I can't believe we've gone this long without talking about the impact of COVID. Mm. One thing that became obvious was how far ahead you go, because certainly, you know, there were what, like four months of episodes built up. I had no idea you were that far ahead, but you're also obviously have gone off the air uh, for several months. So first of all, what's it been like? And second, that must have had a really huge impact on your job because, a very realistic show has been not realistic um, because it hasn't been referring to COVID, which didn't exist when it when those episodes were written and made, um, but also causing huge challenges for planning. Yeah, it's been wild. <laughs> <laughs> so back in February, we had a, a thing that we have occasionally called a medics day when we get our medical advisors together with our core writers and it's so valuable because we get kind of a real insight on what emergency departments are like around the country and what the big challenges are. And we got right to the end of the day. And obviously we all knew about coronavirus, you know, in Italy. Mm. And somebody asked them, oh, like, are you guys ready for coronavirus? <laughs> and these kind of nurses and paramedics and consultants were like, well, no. Um, it's going to be like a really big deal. It's going to be really hard. We're just kind of getting ready for it now. So that was like a time when you still felt like you could sort of be flippant about yeah, it. And yeah, it felt yeah. so abstract. Mm -hmm. And of course, it feels nothing but now. But yeah. I think I think the big challenge we had was, um, you know, we obviously stopped production. Um, and as the head of the story team, the immediate problem was, well, what do we do with these scripts that are kind of like halfway being written and the things that we planned beyond? Because we'd, we'd planned, I think they were just about to film the end episodes of series 35, I think. So we had a really big decision to make. And mm. actually there was a really great time period where kind of we all just had to kind of really think about like, well, what do we do? Do we chuck everything out? And do we start again? And do we play this all through the lens of a pandemic? Mm. Um, or, you know, do we actually just try and get making the show again and kind of ignore this thing, which was a real thing that was talked about at the time, which was, would the audience have any appetite? Like, if, if you're living this, if you're living in lockdown, yeah. Yeah. and if you potentially your family members are getting sick or you're getting sick or you're very worried, mm. do you actually want to watch your characters deal with this kind of week after week or or do you want escapism and i think mm. you know drama does both a drama kind of reflects what we live in and drama offers an escape from it and it really felt like we were in a crucible between those two things mm. um and in the end what we decided um was that we that we just had to address it that it was impossible not to address it and yeah. so we kind of came up with the idea of um, having a special which is the episode that we're returning with when we're back on air and which has yeah. been filmed and is being edited which kind of just tackles it head on and it kind of almost goes from people getting news reports about Italy up until maybe kind of June or July of this year mm. 
and kind of takes us through it with the characters that we love. And actually, it was really interesting. I was watching bits of it the other day and I'd kind of forgotten loads of stuff about the early months of the pandemic. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliantly written and our cast have, have done a phenomenal job. So that's kind of what we're going to come back with. But then mm-hmm. I think our consensus... And I, and I think we're right to do this, is that you don't then want COVID stories every week. Mm. That actually, you know, we'll have addressed it in this really kind of heart-wrenching way. And then we want to show the ED as a place where, you know, COVID is something that is being dealt with. People are coming in, they're needing treatment. Um, medics are, are having to change the way they work in terms mm. of masks and all mm. of this kind of stuff. Mm. But to try and kind of tell the huge range of casualty stories that we were telling before. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think I, I think I stand by that because I yeah. do think like what was so hard was just trying to guess yeah. back in kind of March yeah. how people would feel in January next year. <laughs> and yeah, it's like you don't really realise how much you rely on the future being like the present. Jenny, um, thank you. This has been amazing. Thanks a lot. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right, June, let's talk about soap operas for a second, okay? Because I get the sense from your conversation that they have a very different position in UK culture than they do here. I mean, they're even on the radio. Yes, they are. Let's talk about that radio one first, since Jenny mentioned having worked on The Archers. Um, That show airs on Radio 4 every weekday in Britain with a popular omnibus edition on Sunday morning. That's something that British soap operas on both radio and television generally do. At the Over the weekend, they'll just kind of bring all the episodes from the week into one giant episode at the weekend. Um, the Archers has been on the air since 1951. God damn. <laughs> That's more than 19,000 episodes. Um, it's set in the British countryside. A lot of the storylines are about agricultural issues. And at least until COVID hit, which actually had a surprisingly big impact on the show and they had to kind of shift to monologues rather than the usual drama format, it was pretty much constantly the most popular program on Radio 4, which is the BBC's main speech channel. Um, On the TV side, yes, soaps air in primetime and they're super, super popular. The big ones are Coronation Street and EastEnders. The former is set in Manchester, hey, and airs on ITV, uh, the main commercial network. And the latter is set in London and airs on the BBC. And it's like a soccer rivalry. Are you City or United, Corrie or EastEnders? I'm Corrie, of course. For 
decades, I mean decades because Coronation Street also started in 1960 and has been producing episodes all that time. EastEnders is a much more Johnny-come-lately, 1985, I believe it started. Um, well, right, because rationing of soap operas ended. <laughs> that's right, that's Along right. Along with, the, you know, all the other things. Yes. And so Coronation Street, EastEnders, Emmerdale, which, like The Archers, is a rural show. It was first known as Emmerdale Farm. Uh, they dominate the ratings, and they're still the most watched dramas every single week. Okay, so let me just ask, why do you think that is? Why do you think soap operas have that place in UK culture, That popu- not only that popularity, because there are primetime yeah. soaps yeah. here. I mean, Scandal is essentially a soap opera, right? But they haven't been running for a million years. They don't have that kind of following, and they certainly don't do 46 episodes a year here in the States. So what do you attribute that to? Why do you think there's that appetite for these shows? I mean, partly it's habit, um, which has changed a little bit like the way you know how soap operas still exist in the US but they are a shadow of their former selves they're nothing like the British soaps they're not at all realistic the British soaps are very realistic and they tend to be uh, set in working class communities Coronation Street is a back street in a northern town uh, East Enders is set in the east end of London you know it's on a on a square with a market They are everyday stories of ordinary people. And I think Brits just like that. They like to deal with, you know, just nitty gritty stories. And and they are, it's not just that they're nitty gritty, they're very gritty. They're not at all glamorous. The people wear, for the most part, the kinds of clothes that, that people wear, which is not the case with Scandal. You know, I would love that beautiful white jacket Uh, that she used to wear, but it would be filthy in my case. And so they're very realistic. And I think people just dig that. And then, of course, the fact that they've been on forever. You know, if you've been watching Kari since you were a kid, it kind of takes a lot to get you to stop. I love that you call it Corey like it's an old friend. That really gives a <laughs> sense of the dynamic you're talking about. And, you yeah. know, I thought it was really fascinating in your conversation how much genre creates the rules of storytelling. Mm. Jenny is is very clear about it. Well, it's not really a soap because a soap has these rules. We think of it as a medical drama, which has these other rules. And it's not just for television. I mean, to talk about us for a second, Workings an Interview podcast, that creates a lot of rules for us right out of the gate. Do you think about the implicit rules of the form that you're working in? Yeah, I think you have to. And if you're not thinking about it, it's only because you've completely integrated them into your head. Um When I'm preparing for this show, it's a very different process for getting ready to be on a chat type show like the Culture Gabfest or the Waves. And I think you have to be aware of format. Um, If you're writing a story for a website, that's different from writing something for a book where you can't link to supporting material. A chat show podcast uh, is a very different beast from a narrative podcast. And sometimes you can break the rules, but I think you have to understand the rules and follow them to a certain extent before you can make anything that people um, will be comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as an ignorant yank, this uh, conversation (laughs) really, really blew my mind. Because even though I love British television, I was totally unaware of how different the process of doing serialized TV is in the UK. There's no writer's room. There's no showrunner. The episodes are written by freelancers. And then the overall serial arc is done in a different department, but they don't actually write the episodes. I mean, like, it's just a really good reminder that these ways of working evolve through convention and business needs and are not actually handed down by God on Mount Sinai on these like stone (laughs) tablets or whatever. I know. I am very aware that I have cursed that difference on many occasions. Um, For a long time, Seth Stevenson, now of the great Slate podcast, Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism, he and I did recap podcasts about Downton Abbey, and we were constantly praying that, like, Julian Fellows would invite some friends over and they might suggest some new storylines to him because he had this really bad habit of just repeating the same two or three ideas over and over and over again. So there are definite downsides to not having writer's rooms. But what's interesting to me is that despite there not really being an exact analog for the showrunner, there are definitely a whole bunch, maybe even more, superstar TV writers, creators, people like Sally Wainwright, 
Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, Armando Iannucci, Jed Mercurio, Paul Abbott, they're all responsible for multiple, like, superstar shows. So although the setup is different when it comes to the writing and the production process, I don't think it changes our tendency to want to see one person as the creator of a show or a world of shows. I mean, yes, it's especially true, you know, in a six episode per series Mm. TV show, it's usually going to be written by one person or two people, right? Um, like Catastrophe or Geary Haji or yeah. any of those other ones that have that have come over recently. But apparently, once you get to a certain size, it's got like three <laughs> different bureaus, uh, which exactly. which is a logistical nightmare. You know, when I was li- yeah. when I was listening to this, I was like, this job, just the logistics of it. I am not someone who enjoys organizing schedules. Uh, seems like a nightmare, but. I know you do a lot of logistics and planning in your job here at Slate. What did you make of the logistical side of her job? Jenny's description of the whiteboard and that process of going through the plans, the season stories, making the A, B, and C storylines in different colors, that sounds like absolute nirvana to me. Um, I hosted a Slate podcast about the Americans for a few seasons, and that meant spending some time in their production offices and The rooms with charts like matching up historical events from the 80s with storylines on the show. That was my happy place. Planning a project is by far my favorite part of a project. So you just like to, you got to bust out the index cards like they do. Oh my God. Put them all over the place. Absolutely. Oh, index cards, highlighters. That's pure joy right there. Well, listeners, if uh, you're at home with your index cards, please write yourself a note to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts because that is our episode for this week. And yes, before you go, I'm going to give you that Slate Plus pitch because Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but more importantly, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year and you can get a free two-week trial right now at sayitwithmeslate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Jenny Thompson and our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with a conversation between Isaac and Michael Watson, the cinematographer of Lovecraft Country. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>